Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. X-Men number 12 was written by Jonathan Hickman, artist Leniel Francis Yu, coloring by Sonny Go, letterer VC's Clayton Cowles, and design by none other than Tom Muller. I told a story last episode where I didn't read a book for five days. I stupidly sat on Excalibur the way Kyle sat on that key in the escape room. And I was really disappointed with myself because I hadn't read Excalibur sooner. I'm disappointed in Marvel for not giving me X-Men 12 years ago, all my life ago. This is what I should have always been having had. This is, this is the dream. I don't know what it is about X-Men by John Hickman that has just like fucked me in the dick so good, but it has been a ball slapper every single week and I am gobstopped with sadness to hear that none other than Lionel Francis Yu left the book with this issue. Not what I wanted to hear, not what I was hoping for. He'll evidently still be doing covers as well as occasional guest spots but he is turning over the reins and you know, at least it's for really equally brilliant artists who have already touched the franchise. I just I feel bad for Apocalypse. Like I don't know how but I need to know how Apocalypse Like I, I feel like he longs for a better world. Apocalypse spent the entire time since like X-Factor number five kind of being the worst terrorist in the universe, like really up there, like trying to end the universe over and over again, slaughtering people. The last time Apocalypse pulled the Council of Twelve together, it didn't go so well for Scott Summers. You know what I mean? And I find myself like beleaguered with sadness for everything that has happened to Krakoa and Arako and there's just the great pain that they are making it clear is coming like I've never been such a big Apocalypse fan I still don't think I like him but I think I like hating him and I like liking hating him but still want to see like does anybody else feel weird things about Apocalypse now? I feel sympathetic to him. He's been fighting all this time to get back to his wife. And it's like, oh, that's just, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a very bittersweet feeling for Apocalypse. Because on one hand, you're like, well, he's kind of just doing what he was genetically made to do, which is he's trying to survive and he's trying to conquer and live and show the world that mutants mean business. On the other hand, the way he goes about it always isn't the best. And are we going to forgive everything he's done? I don't even know anything he's done. Besides, you know, maybe Torture Scott, but a couple of the other X-Men. We tend to hand wave individual familial tortures. You know what I mean? Like, there's times, like, not just now, but like, there's times Mr. Sinister just hangs out with the X-Men. That's kill. That's cool. He only tortured some Summers. I was going to say, if it happens to the Summers family, we kind of just, we just forget it. They deserve it. You can kind of hand wave the bad of the greys away. It's okay. You can do it, right? And, you know, Arturo, 
know, I, I, I'm really fascinated because you're someone who we mentioned a couple of episodes ago. You're like the guy that that whole era was really about. It was about making your childhood like sing and come to life. And Apocalypse is such a divisive character. And people really have opinions on him. What was your pre-Hoxpox opinion? What is your post-Docs opinion? And how do you feel about the big ole? I think he is and always has been just an incredibly compelling and just rich character. Uh, I think, you know, we talk about the 90s and, and there, there was a lot of uh, ups and downs of it. But, you know, I keep going back to the age of Apocalypse, right? And things did not really turn out so well under Apocalypse's management. But for whatever reason, I've always maintained kind of a, a, a faith in him. He's like the villain that I would like to see win. And we've all seen what happens when he wins. And even in House of X, Powers of Ten, you know, we saw Apocalypse into the future when all these other a lot of these other characters are dust or have been you know reanimated into a new form north i'm looking at you apocalypse still comes out on top so i i'm all i'm here for it man i am i'm all for getting more into his background i'm glad that things are going in this direction and i'm really excited to learn more about you know the original horseman and genesis and the rest of his offspring. I think it's I think it's just incredible what the team is doing here where they're really writing a whole new story. And I think that's that's what I'm enjoying the most right now of of X of Swords is it feels new. Like I'm reading this and and I feel like a kid again reading comic books. Like I'm actually excited about it and I'm and I've got questions and and but it's just it's beautiful and uh it's, it just feels special. It doesn't feel and it feels special in a different way than House of X and Powers of Ten felt because that felt very special, but it also felt very um, connected to the line, right? Like, okay, this is, there's something happening in the X-Men universe. This feels more like, okay, something big has happened. Now we're just telling you a, a really great adventure story with a lot of history and there will be consequences and there's going to be changes. Um, but I, I don't think that the, that it's going to be as, as groundbreaking as, uh, House of X and Powers of, of Time War. Like, I don't see this as the end of Dawn of X. This is going to just be a big... This is like... Let me put it this way. This feels kind of like uh, a new version of like Inferno, where it's this huge sweeping, you know, there's magic and mysticism and demons and creatures. And almost it feels like a like a like telling of a new religion. But I expect things will settle and, and we'll, we'll keep on and, going. You know, when we think about the way the X-Men are so famous for kind of maybe drawing things out, I can't help but agree with you. This read to me like something I... I would expect to see in an annual or possibly given a four issue miniseries or at the end of the 90s, given a 12 issue maxi series. I feel like this would have been drawn out and we would have been given the Arako War. And if I still get the Arako War in the course of X-Men, I'm happy. But rather than wasting an issue, they just put it in issue 12. That's something we said that we would have felt maybe a little bit better about with Giant Sized a couple of weeks ago. Perhaps if that whole story had been like 150 page book, we wouldn't be so nothing happened but we're kind of nothing happened yeah, but I feel like what I just gotta I gotta jump back to page one did everybody here love getting that phenomenal diagram of rock slide that tells me that essentially rock slide is just a giant rocky version of glob herman but instead of a skeleton he's got splodies I did it was cool I loved that that was great I loved yeah. it 
uh, something I wanted to mention, just to echo what Arturo said, seeing the original Horseman, wasn't that one of Bar Sinister's, uh, Sinister's read, you know, gossip column talking about Apocalypse's original Horseman? Oh, and didn't he say something like there's kids that are angry that they got forgotten about? Oh. I believe so. I think that's what he was talking about. Oh, you guys are going to make me dig this up. The Fugly Slut Summoner is a high summoner. It can summon three major demons. I always love how they, when people spell demons with an A in it. I think it's hysterical. Um, and a bunch of other, you know, elementals and blah, blah, blah. All this cool stuff. And something that I'm thinking about is how it's going to interact with the serial killer from Nova Roma. The one who, ha- who like, tortured Amara's dad with the, with the parasite. So that's something I'm thinking about is that. But also, I really enjoyed the game. And it's like, okay. I still don't trust you, but like, I get you, girl. I see you. And like, we could be friends. Like, we're going to hang out a little bit more and I'm going to get to know you a little bit better, but I'm not telling you anything yet. But I'm, I'm not playing the weakness game with you because I don't need you, to, you know, looking deep in my soul and telling me what's wrong with me. I could already do that myself. Thank you. And I also enjoyed seeing Sean Cassidy and Eunice being used because they haven't been doing anything. It was great to see Banshee and Eunice because they are characters from the 60s who both have been underutilized in this era, but for those who don't realize it, Banshee actually was initially an X-Men enemy who would become an ally before joining the team in a full capacity under the pen of Len Wein and Chris Claremont. So it's important to keep in mind that as far as they're going new, and as much as they're making great strides toward new ideas, there still are those lovely touches of seeing Banshee show up, of getting a little bit of Eunice, who... Yeah, you know, if everybody's getting a clean slate, I think a guy who can make pretty near indestructible force fields, that's a guy you want to have on your side. I'm going to go for that one. I love seeing Eunice back in the mix. Again, this just speaks to one of the things that I love the most about Dawn of X, where it feels like, I mean, you guys know I love uh, action figures, right? I've got way too many of them. It feels like all of the toys in the toy box are fair game, and any creator can just reach in and grab somebody, whether they've been on page recently or you haven't seen them in a book in 15 years they're fair play and and it's great because for people that don't know anything about Eunice it's like okay I can I can still roll with the story I don't need to know anything but for people that do know who he is and his whole you know his whole history you see him on the page and it's such an exciting moment so yeah I love that about this era I love that for all of the new stuff there's still so much just classic old school nods tied into everything and one of the things that has me the most excited about this like blending of old and new is as much as there's room for newer mutants like the success of glob and i know not everybody loves kid cable but i do so like and i'm glad to see him getting some spotlight it's a lot of fun but you're still getting wolverine and you're still getting cyclops and gene and then you kind of got those intermediates the way magic and monet are really starting to get more and more panel time at the same point though they're not shying away from creating new characters The X-Men is managing to grow as a brand without, in my opinion, too far overextending itself. But Kyle, I feel like we've even discussed that there were some mutants that we're feeling like still aren't getting enough spotlight. And I know how much you enjoyed, like, Trinary. Do you feel as though there's still room for that last batch of mutants that are kind of maybe getting a little waysided to show up in this story? Or would you maybe rather see them benched and saved for later? Mm. 
Honestly, I think it's a little late in the buildup to be pulling them in. I I don't want it to feel like they are kind of being forced into the story without any kind of lead-in. Regarding Trinary in particular, I do think that she will have some kind of influence in this overarching story because she did appear on one of the tarot cards. So I think she'll she'll show up at some point. But for yes, yeah, uh... <laughs> what? Wait, what tarot card? Hold on. It was the uh, the hangman, or I thought that was Trinary. Oh my oh, god, might that be might Monet. be. I thought that was Monet. No, right. but it There's, might be That's trinary. even part of the magic. There's so many characters in shadow behind these characters yeah. as well. As much as it would always be great to be able to identify characters visually, we even made a comment about that last episode where we joked that it can be kind of hard to tell Emma from Saturnine, from Courtney Ross, ultimately from Magic, from <laughs> Lady Mastermind. So it's not out there to think that it's maybe a little difficult to figure out who's who exactly. And one of the things is that Arturo when you were saying that like it kind of feels like Hoxpox started something and this is going to continue it it's kind of like Hoxpox was chapter one right this doesn't need to be the final chapter just because it's the thing coming after it this is an attempt to create a multifaceted view of the X-Men this is a way that they can work to bring in all of the elements not to plug a show that I'm also on right now but Joey and I have been hanging out on Fantastic Four which is Kevo and Mai's show under HTML and one of the things that Joey said is that he feels like the Fantastic Four are a little incomplete in the films, like something's missing. And I explained to him, for me, in many ways, it's that now that we've lost Chadwick Boseman and Chadwick Boseman can never join Reed Richards, his best friend, his equal. Reed is such a big personality. It takes someone on his level to humble him. And that's the kind of thing I need for Reed Richards to feel complete. I don't always think that feeling of completeness needs to lead to a feeling of conclusion, though. And I think this uh, this attempt to bring the magic of X-Men, the mythology of X-Men, the mutancy of X-Men, and the humanity of X-Men all into one place really does make it feel like a different story. The X-Men are so multifaceted. When people think of the Fantastic Four, they don't think of Reed as the anchor to T'Challa's Panther God of the Dead status. They think of Reed as big science, but if you're going to give me a Fantastic Four movie, fuck, I need a little magic. Doom does magic. Give me a little magic. I can't have my X-Men without this sense of bigness. And anybody who tries to say that magic is new to the X-Men, I mean, I think Inferno is one of the most beloved stories of all time for X-Fans. And that is the most magical X-Story ever. And yeah, I really see that to your point. This feels like an Inferno. This feels like a building point, not a conclusion. Exactly that. It doesn't it, like it. I think the more obvious, you know, chain of events could have been, oh, we're going to see Orcus again, or we're going to see, you know, Nimrod or, you know, hey, Nimrod coming from the future to stop this life of Moira's or, or whatever. Something that would have felt more, oh, okay, we're going back to, you know, to house to and back. powers. And it's definitely not that. It's definitely not that. It's this is another huge chapter in a, the ongoing story. Like this is this. This is a, a second act and it's very different from the first act, but it is in no way the conclusion. And and that's what I love about this right now is it feels like we're we're world building and we're we're gonna 
see new characters and, and changes for existing characters. Look at look at what's going on with Richter, which I haven't always been 100% on board with. I was kind of like, oh, why are you messing with my boy? But I, I'm into it at this point. I'm like, hey, let's let's see where Richter ends up. Let's see, you know, what happens to Monet. Let's see what changes are going to happen to these beloved characters. Because I think this will change the status quo in, in a lot of ways without it ending this Dawn of X era. I don't, I don't think this is going to end with Chimera. I don't think this is going to end with the end of Resurrections. I think we're, those things will still continue right now. That's not where we're going with these stories, I think. One thing that I loved about X-Men 12 is we saw, I think, one of the tarot cards again like come to life on panel i'm referring to the eight of cups tarot card which we didn't know who that character was or if it was one character or two and then in issue 12 we find out that it's genesis and she's fighting annihilation so the eight of cups card is actually both of their faces and then on the panel they're both where their swords are clashing, uh, they're both on the same sides as they are on the Eight of Cups card. So I thought that was that was really that cool. That is such a so okay. I guess the Kyle Award this episode goes to Arturo, <laughs> where someone's like, "Oh, did I mention that I figured out everything about the entire book?" Right? Oh, oh, sorry. End of the episode. Hey, it's just one card. It's just one card. You know, we still got a whole bunch well, of other I ones to figure am out. Mind blown. At the amount that we've been given, I know a lot of people were a little not happy with Free Comic Book Day or maybe a little underwhelmed with where Excalibur was leading into X of Swords, but I think we're standing on the precipice of something really exciting. X-Men 12 brought some really great things to push the narrative forward for the Ten of Swords event that's going on. I think Summoner is there, but told a really interesting backstory to more about Krakoa, Apocalypse, and why he is the way he is. I think that gave Apocalypse a little bit more depth and character and helped bridge the gap to make him more along the lines of other more complex villains similar to Doctor Doom or Magneto. I'm really excited to see what's going on and this is uh, one of the first tarot cards coming to fruition. Uh, the very first card that Opal Luna Saturnine pulled showed Apocalypse and Summoner and I hope this is what that card was talking about. So I'm excited to see where this is going. X-Men number 12 written by Jonathan Hickman with artist Lionel Francis. Francis Yu, color artist Sunny Go, letterer VCs Clayton Cowles, with design by Tom Muller, and cover art by Lionel Francis Yu and Sunny Go. In the early days of the Krakoa nation, it merged with a mysterious island of beasts, a piece of Krakoa's lost other half, Arako. The only other inhabitant of this fragment was a summoner, invulnerable and able to call forth monsters, who has now made his home of Krakoa. So, just talking about the cover, first of all, I love this. It is absolutely incredible. It is so beautiful and dark at the same time and it just immediately grabbed me when I saw it on the shelf and I'm like I want to know what's going on right now and you know that's such a credit to the art that's that is such a credit to Lionel Francis you and Sonny Go because the summer yeah. has been a character that we've seen pop up here and there he popped up in X-Men 11 before it became a Magneto story about Empire, but he really hasn't been around since X-Men number two, number three. So the fact that we can get so hyped, the fact that we can get so excited about a cover that features primarily the Summoner just goes to show how dynamic of a job was done here. The coloring itself is unbelievable. The coloring, the, the very blocked 
cell shading here is dynamite. And let us not forget now, as we see the summoner yes. here, we're shown one more time in this issue, the mark of the summoner, know them well. And this is a type three summoner able to summon, if I'm not mistaken, a horde of elemental demons. So these are, this is the first look in in months and months at the capability of the summoner and what he is able to summon since, if I'm not mistaken, X-Men number two. There's such a density to unpack here. The early ending of Rockslide and Summoner's game with one another leading way for Apocalypse to hear the story, once again, of Amenthi and the original Four Horsemen. It, it's almost it's almost too daunting to know where to begin, where we are shown Genesis for the first time, we are shown the White Sword for the first time, we are shown War for the first time since House of X number five, we are shown the other three horsemen for the very first time. There is almost an overwhelming amount of content here, and it is thankfully framed so beautifully. This is the kind of information dump that I like, where just instead of just having a wall of text, they're showing us and they showed it so well. It just, I felt it flowed just beautifully throughout the entire issue. One of the things I really loved, especially like the art, was just how there's such, how Araco and Krakoa, there's so many parallels. Like the council chamber, like looks very similar. Like, um, I'm just like, wow. Like, well, you know, and it's so funny that you bring up the council chamber because I wanted to bring that up specifically. Does anybody feel like the the sentient incarnation of Araco sitting by in the council looks a little bit more fully formed than that of Krakoa? Oh, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's really got a, a bigger shape, maybe. Is Araco more uh, together? Maybe can he communicate with the mutants of Araco himself, too? It's more sleek and developed and just ready to go versus where in Krakoa, it's they're there in nature. It seems more wild, more new, still untamed. So it kind of has this this parallel of Kuroka still untamed and unknown versus the other place where it is tamed. They're understanding what they're doing and they know the drill by now. Ooh, no, that's a good point. I wonder how much of this is because the early mutants had such a such a ready access to this surplus of mutant magic. I wonder I wonder just how much like cognitive effort it takes for Araco to not only sustain itself, but these ten towers that we see raised. Ten, of course, being the symbolism that is going to pervade this book, but to see the ten towers be raised as like a magical sigil slash totem to to protect Araco. You know, you have to wonder how much more intuitive Araco is than Krakoa and what that might mean for a rescue team entering Araco through Otherworld. You know, let's break away from X-Men for a moment. I would love to know, Evelyn, as a guest who has not uh, contributed with us yet as, as a first-timer here, I'm very interested to know your theory. Where is Moira? I really couldn't tell you. I've been more focused and I'll be honest, I've been more focused on Marauders. So like anything that's not Marauders is not in my brain right now. That's something that we'll obviously talk about once it comes up. But I just, I really don't have any theories. She could really be anywhere. And I, I kind of like not knowing. 
Maybe she's uh, in that little cafe that she used to visit with Charles in Paris. That's, that's kind of where my headcanon goes. And then Christian Bale's Batman shows up and they share a, not, a knowing nod to one another and go their separate ways. Absolutely. And there's our DC Marvel crossover. <laughs> that's, that's, has... that's how we're getting there. I want to go back for a moment. I assume we've all seen the image, the sword bearers of Araco, the introduction, beware the sword bearers of Araco that came out a couple of months ago, which gave us the the list of names for everybody featured. Solemn, Pog or Pog, the white sword, how we got classified for annihilation. Did anybody expect the white sword to be set up as such a main adversary in the story here? Because he's he is positioned in the sword bearer image, like top far right. He is as removed as can be. And I would say from the story that we've gotten here it's the biggest takeaways are ancient mutant magic genesis the wife of apocalypse annihilation (laughs) being set up as our main big bad but the defeat at the hands of our own with the white sword i was not expecting the white sword to be as prominent in this in this arc as as he seems to be see i i'm not surprised because it's kind of swords so i've been noticing that they're setting up a lot of swords in general just across like all the x-men stuff so for me i'm just expecting anyone with a sword to show up at some point oh yeah totally (laughs) we'll have to see how the cerebro sword currently in the hands of mikhail will enter the picture here yeah just the first the second i saw that they were sending that rescue team in i was like oh no is banshee gonna die again please don't kill banshee again how many times have we seen him die I was like, ooh, Unis. That's like, exactly like, what I thought. <laughs> there, was, there was something about how Cavalier. I saw Banshee, and I'm like, oh no. There was something about how Cavalier he was about being like, I'm a traveling man, love to see the sights. I was like, you're dying. Yeah. You're dying first, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. You are the himbo in the horror movie that's just going down into the basement when you shouldn't. Oh, I never, th- he is so himbo, isn't he though? Look at how deep that V is. He is the <laughs> ultimate himbo. And this is actually going back to a, a conversation that we'd had. It really is. Uh, this is going back to a conversation that we'd had a couple weeks ago when we were discussing Empire X-Men. I don't know if that missed your missed your gaze there, Evelyn, but uh, what do you think about Angel's status as a himbo? Oh, he's... Uh, I feel like he's a wannabe himbo. Like, I feel like he tries, but just falls short. Like, he's not sure how to go about it. <laughs> Founding founding member and contributor of the show, Jonah, has the best term for it, which is a reverse sugar baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, 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 I like he that to, a lot. He, he needs to be babied a la a sugar daddy, but he's the one with the money. It's just a little That's too good. absolutely apt. Too good. So we've discussed a little bit of everything today. A lot of mutant magic, a lot of beautiful art, a lot of beautiful X-Men. I couldn't be any more fortunate to be here with all of you today, especially as we launch this tremendous event with a tremendous team, with a brand new format. And I just wanted to thank you all for coming on and spending your Sunday chatting about the X-Books with us like the world were normal and we could all be in a comic shop together. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of fun to just be able to just talk nerdy with people. And welcome back, everyone, to This Is X. This is Josh, and here in this room, I've got Kyle. Hello. Arturo. Greetings. Rod. Hola. And Nathan. Hey, how's it going, guys? Our little group today is going to be uh, recapping Marvel Tales, the origin of Captain Britain. Did any of you all get a chance to read the Marvel Tales Captain Britain origin that got reprinted? Yes. 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 
actually the first time that I've read it, so it's it was kind of nice. Same here, same here. I never, uh, I, I was never really a big Excalibur person. I was never a big Captain Britain person. So like sitting down and reading the actual origin and not just what I've heard of it uh, was was really interesting. It was it's actually pretty pretty fun read. It's been a few years since I read it, so I was like, ooh, let me revisit it. It doesn't read the same as I remember it doing. <laughs> Yeah, I um I have not read a lot of the Marvel um British stuff. I mean, I went back and I picked up a lot of those um, you know, cheap dollar bin back issues of Motormouth cuz they're funny and I have some of the Cornell uh Captain Britain stuff because I like some of the new characters he introduced, but I've never really I definitely haven't done the old Captain Britain until now. So, you know, you see some in flashbacks in Excalibur and other things, but it was nice you know, actually going in and, and seeing this story for the first time. And, and it's cool that it, it is Claremont. The little recognizable pieces, you know, you can tell because Claremont brought them back and used them. You know, the things that we saw were used over and over again through Excalibur and X-Men as well. Yeah, for me, the big highlight of that little story was just seeing the word Siege Perilous in print. Like, I, I didn't Google it, but... I, I'm guessing that might be like the first time we ever see that. And it just, it had such a cool impact on me because here's a story from, I don't know, 1978 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's referencing something that the first time I ever heard about it, it was a big deal. I didn't realize back then that, uh, you know, when they walk through the siege perilous and start the outback years and all that, I didn't, I didn't realize that that was a tie into, to this. I, I didn't, I know that Roma was involved in that. I just didn't really piece it together. So seeing Roma and Merlin and the Siege Perilous in this was was pretty pretty cool. Yeah, those are some pieces that have been used repeatedly and it's one of the nice things about X canon when it's you know, I think when it's kind of maintained or cared for, when you get those writers that like to kind of dip back and, and carry strands. Um you know, and this was Claremont, you know, bringing his own pieces in, but yeah, I felt the same way about seeing Siege Perilous. Um, you know, that whole story in X-Men where they went into it to start the Aussie. Um, Howard Mackey brought a lot of that stuff back in his X-Factor run. And, you know, just seeing those characters and the, the through lines from, you know, that there are through lines from 70s Captain Britain into 80s X-Men and 90s Excalibur and late 90s X-Factor. Those are the things that make going back and rereading these a lot of fun for me. Well, even... And even the the Roma and Merlin, you know, I know we're, we're not there yet, but we're going to see them, you know, as players in this big event. And, and just to see mm-hmm. that this is a this was back during a time when things were different, when they were unified, and, you know, and, and there's been a, a shift now in the status quo over there. I, I love that. I love those little nuggets. And I love that that we're digging into all this stuff. Like I've said it before, for me, X-Men is I like the sci-fi-ness of X-Men more, the the genetic mutation and, and, you know, all of that. I like the robots. I even like some of the space opera stuff. But the magic stuff really isn't my jam. And I don't know. I mean, just, you know, last week I was talking about how it's, it reminds me a little bit of Inferno. I am loving it now. Like, this is just such a fun fun era and i love that they're digging into all the guts of the of the magic that you know as we see here with captain britain it's woven in from you know decades ago 
I agree. And I think the magic stuff's never been mine as well, but I love the history part and the fact that these are being kind of tied together so well because, you know, magic is apocalypses, you know, pre-modern version history is really nice. And yeah, seeing Roma and Merlin, I mean, going back and the way that this reminded me of those through lines and those stories uh, with the Siege Perilous and Forge kind of makes me curious to think of, you know, what role we're going to see Forge play or if Forge is going to have some interaction with them again based on how important he was when they used the Siege Perilous that first time as well. It would be interesting if they brought Forge back into this just because of his connections with some of the characters that have been marked as leading characters in in the uh the event i'm just kind of wondering if he would be a big player in it as well or if he'd just be more of a side person you'd think he would only because you know if for no other reason than the fact that you know there are hundreds of x characters but only a small handful of them who are readily associated with magic and you know the sp- spirit world and such and forge is one of them even though we think of him as like big gun tech do sex machina guy like he's also shaman yeah oh yeah that's right i forgot about that he was the one who beat the adversary with the uh spell right yeah yeah he's the one who yeah that roma and merlin came to um because of his connection and him being like the bridge there back with the siege perilous the first time in the adversary I would I would love to see them tug on that and and bring his uh, his, his shaman magical side into this. But while they're not, anytime Forge is not on the page, I just like to think that he's busy tinkering, making weapons, and doing squats. Yes, <laughs> always. Yes, Jim Bro Forge. Always. I love I love this this new era of Forge. I love the way he's being written. I think I, I, I want more Forge, absolutely. And I don't know if this is canon or if this is just my head canon, but he is daily in his little lab. When he's doing squats, it's in like the early 80s, like um, Daisy Duke, like gym short shorts. Oh, that's canon. Oh, that's yeah, canon. okay. That is canon. <laughs> All right. The, the image you're thinking of, you didn't dream that. That is canon. That is seared into your subconscious. We're all seeing it in our heads right now. That shit's canon. Uh, but back to like Captain Britain, I love, I kind of like love the story where he's, uh, you know, like the choice he's got to make, right? You know, he's got to choose between the sword, he's got to choose between the amulet, right? Like, and he's like, I'm no killer, so I choose the amulet, and that's like the right choice and what gets him to be Captain Britain in the first place. So, well, and it just the whole thing smacks of like it. It was just written in a different era for a different, yes. you know, a simpler time where. It feels like it's just basically, uh, you know, that 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 expression or whatever of might doesn't make right. And it, it just feels like here's a little simple story to impart on children because this is only being written for children, quote unquote. And it's, you know, do what's right. Don't just be strong and be a bully. Do what's right. It's better to be the good, good kid that does right than to be the, the bully with might. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like I'm on record as saying it's not my thing, but I, like I said, I'm enjoying no, that the, the magic is coming right, back. It's some it. standard fair, goofy, silver age. I mean, you know, 78, right. we're talking yeah. late, 
you know, the transition from, you know, we got a lot of Bronze Age stuff going on. Um, I think um, Punisher had already been created, I want to say. We have um, the um, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill, Green Lantern and Green Arrow was about two years in. Like, we're into that Bronze Age stuff. But I feel like if you go out of America, like, probably British, Canadian, we're still printing the loopier silver age like you probably have the further you go away from like main market you start getting more of the um standard fare as opposed to cutting edge so this was that like the last vestiges of that uh silver aginess and i also like anytime we're reminded that brian is a physicist um and that he is (laughs) he's the original like dr christmas jones like you know the um from the world is not enough, you know, when Denise Richards was the sexy nuclear physicist and it's like, what? Like (laughs) she's a nuclear physicist. Like that, that he's that himbo who's also supposed to be a serious scientist. And you just kind of tilt your head and they're like, really? Well, I think it's, it's uh, good to note that at this point in time, he's not this, he's not naturally this big buff, beautiful guy he's just a a normal nerdy guy and the the transformation into captain britain physically changes his body oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah he says that yeah yeah but he was still pretty hot i mean yeah he was, well, <laughs> yes. he was. He was, he was, hot, he was a pretty hot yeah yeah, that's like a she's all that. Like he took off his glasses and oh my god, <laughs> wow, where did this come from? It's Hollywood hot. <laughs> uh, I, I got an open question. If anybody knows, do we ever see? Do we ever see the Reaver come back? Not to be confused with the Reavers, the cyber cyborg uh, mutant hunters of Donald Pierce. But do we ever see the Reaver ever again? Has anyone in the room read more than the two issues we just talked about? <laughs> um, I don't think we've I seen haven't. Reaver, but I know we've seen Doctor Travis again a few times, a bunch of times. He pops up, but I'm not yeah, sure. I, right, I haven't read enough. So, <laughs> all right, listeners, if you know anything about Reaver, tweet me. <laughs> uh, none of us are experts on Captain Britain. We all only read the bare minimum that Nico told us we had to read for this episode. So. <laughs> I've read the Betsy ones, but that's about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you ever get a chance, though, you should go read Betsy is Captain Britain, that one issue where she's got the real crazy purple wig on the cover. That's... This is X, history of X of Swords, Marvel Tales Captain Britain number one. I'm Nico. I'm Maddie. I'm Evelyn. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive this experience. Captain Britain has never had a better spotlight shined on him than in the last couple of months somehow, even though it involves him, like, not being Captain Britain, which, you know, whatever. It kind of works for me, it kind of doesn't, but I'm so excited to discuss what is easily the most discussed book in the history of this show. Somehow we have discussed Captain Britain 1 and 2 something like 10 times in the course of 154 episodes of X's for Podcast. Wow. And I actually think this is my... I know, right? He's just my favorite, so we talk about it too much. But this is my first time getting to discuss all of this with you beauties and i can't wait to do it this is going to be awesome so maddie why don't you let us know what we're talking about today 
today we're going to be talking about Marvel Tales Captain Britain, all written by Chris Claremont with art on numbers one and two by Herb Trine, uh, Marvel Team-Up art by John Byrne, and Excalibur number one's art by Alan Davis. And I had the pleasure of reading this a number of years ago. I actually borrowed a hardcover of Captain Britain Tales. Uh, from Nico, and it was really fascinating to revisit this. I think that it has aged exceptionally well, and I think that the the movement and the art is dynamic. I think that Chris Claremont is as good as ever. Uh, it really was something to see, although I will say I've become more accustomed to some of the later Captain Britain looks, so the original big red look was, uh, was a little jarring at first, but definitely, definitely brought me back. Evelyn, have you ever crossed swords with Captain Britain before? So, no. Reading it was, I mean, I read Excalibur, so I kind of had some knowledge of Captain Britain, but I never read his stuff or his origin. So being able to read this was really interesting. I feel like I understand the character a little bit more now, uh, especially with his team up with Spider-Man a little bit later in the issue. So that was really interesting to actually see a little bit more of the origin of Captain Britain, not just the like edgy emo guy trying to get his stuff together like when he's in Excalibur. Yeah, I hate to admit it, but he is kind of like the Darkmoor edgelord. Yeah. And there's just kind of no way to work around that. Jonah, when you came into my life, you brought with you the amulet of cute and the sword of adorable. And I gotta know, You've read so much Captain Britain, but babe, was this your first time reading classic Captain Britain in his origin form? That is correct. I have not read his origin before. I've just gone off of Nico spewing love and interest and, you know, fawning lust over Brian Braddock that I've never actually read the first couple of issues of how we got started. I've listened to him and Kevo talk about it constantly on the podcast, but the actual me physically reading it has not happened before this. So that brings me to the main question that I want to I want to intersect with. I think Arcade's Marvel team-up story is in this because it's just like, if you're talking about Buffy and somebody's like, oh, what's the best Buffy episodes? You're always going to name the two-parters. You're going to be like, graduation day, becoming, surprise and innocence. Uh, who are you? And this year's girl. You're going to constantly name like the famous two-parters where major stuff happened. And I think that's all that's really happening with the Marvel team-up issue here. You know, it's more like it's happening and everybody's aware that it's like a classic story. And I think the same thing with Excalibur. But, okay, I have been sitting on this happily with joy. I don't even need to talk much because you guys are the, the ones whose opinions I care about. Tell me, how can you see now how Saturnine is kind of like, you're not really Captain Britain and you need to remember that. Like, I, she is to me. Betsy is Captain Britain to me because there's such a transformation of what Captain Britain means, becomes, how it transforms, etc. It, it blows my mind every time. But... I have to know, guys, do you see where Saturnine is coming from that Betsy's a perversion? Almost. It's not... I still feel like the way that Betsy became Captain Britain is very good, but now that I see the origin story where, like, he had to choose between the amulet and the sword where he, and his thought process behind that, I can kind of see where she's coming from a little bit, but I still really dig Betsy as Captain Britain. And she has the superior Cap Britain costume, and anybody who doesn't accept that, I'm, I'm, I, I can't help you with the sad lenses you're viewing this comic through. I don't know that bright red costume. <laughs> There's something about it. Oh, that's actually Kevo's favorite. Uh, so my husband is a humongous Captain Britain fan as well, and the Captain Britain Lionheart costume is definitely Kevo's favorite. Mm. 
Yeah. You, you know, I think that I, I can I can certainly understand why Opa Luna Saturnine believes Betsy to be the pretender. It's not so much to just take the amulet as it is to choose the amulet, and I don't think that Betsy was given a clear choice. Well, I think she was given only a clear choice because the only option available to her at the time was the amulet. But I don't know that I would necessarily consider her a perversion. She does hold the mantle well. She does wield the responsibility well. And she does so all the while while representing a country that doesn't want her necessarily. And I think that something about that is admirable, although it doesn't give much more credence to her role as Captain Britain, so much her moral convictions, but. This is why we had to have this conversation as a group. And I think Evelyn, you'll be able to speak a little bit stronger to the heart of this and Jonah yourself as well. But one of the defining traits of Betsy for the last 20 years has been her inability to truly exist in one world or another. She's not really an Asian woman because it's, you know, brutal appropriation, but she's not really the British woman she once was. Now she's not really British and she's not really Krakoan. She has a foot in both worlds. And I think especially by using a female hero to do that. That truly encapsulates how women have been so ostracized from the comic community while constantly told, please shake your boobs at us. And Jonah, I know you've spoken about how your Latino heritage has made people kind of be like, oh, well, you're something, but you're not white. What are you, exotic boy? And like, I really think there's something so dynamic about how they were able to create a dynastic sense of character development. What do you guys think about Betsy as the woman with her foot in two worlds? Well, she's got one. Oh, she got one foot in on Earth and the other foot in on the in other world, and neither want her. I just want to quickly, before I uh, fully comment on what Nico was talking about, I want to just echo the sentiment of what Maddie and Evelyn were saying that uh, Opaluna Saturnine is doing her job, but I also think there should have been a protocol of if the current reigning Captain Britain did get turned evil. Like I'm pretty sure there. Maybe there wasn't a rule for it, and you kind of have to make it up on the fly. Betsy's at least trying to hold the mantle and uphold the values of what Captain Britain uh, is and who he's supposed to be. So I don't really see the problem, but, like, I understand it. That being said, I really appreciate the work that they're doing to—the work that they're trying to do to undo— the problematic nature of Betsy for a while, and I appreciate that there's a character that, even in a world of mutants, and mutants who are already not accepted by society, we still see there are mutants who aren't accepted within their own community. I think that echoes a lot of marginalized groups who get sort of gatekeepery. You're not X enough, you're not Y enough, you're not whatever enough. And she's a character who I think can go through interesting stories and characterization when you're telling those stories as best as you can. Yeah, I really identify with the whole... I love how it's a female that's dealing with this because I feel like that happens a lot in the comic community. Like you said, Nico, is being a woman in comics, it can be really difficult. I have a lot of experience working at a comic book store where I will have people come in and start asking questions and they're like, no, 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 let me talk to the man. And the man in question will be my intern and they know very little to nothing about what's being asked. And they're like, no, she, she's, she's the one in charge. She's the one to go. And seeing Betsy kind of dealing with that, I can really see myself in her She's kind of in charge of this Captain Britain thing now. She's 
she's Captain Britain. She's trying to hold everything together and they don't necessarily want to work with her, but they kind of have to. Well, and let's also not forget, Betsy is who we're stuck with, for lack of a better term, if for no other reason than Excalibur number six uh, of this run brings the fact that Brian was given another choice in a dream and he chose the sword to light. So he is now the Lionheart. There is no other way around it. He is not Captain Britain. He was presented the choice again. He was given the opportunity to reclaim the mantle. And all of this is something I wish we could have seen on panel, but I understand why we couldn't have for the sake of narrative flow. But I find it amazing that Opal Luna Saturnine has nothing to say of that. Well, and I think that's the magic of Opal Luna Saturnine being the character that they're making kind of the bad guy of all of this. She's been so removed for so long, they can kind of pretend that she's been biding her time. But like, nah, she's just kind of not been being used because writers don't know how to write strong, intelligent women. So I find myself like, I think the key thing about this story is that Captain Britain, one, two, there's not a lot you're missing to get to Marvel Team Up 6566. And as long as you accept that he has now met Megan, there's not a lot of required update that is not given at the start of Excalibur. Captain Britain is a man constantly frozen in an inability to evolve, which makes him a perfect pawn for Saturnine to manipulate. Betsy is intelligent, dynamic, adaptive, and so busy getting involved in other people's bullshit in a good way, like saving the world, that she can't be the other world pawn running the other world school. And I wonder if... Brian's cuckish malleability is something that Saturnine needs in order to feel her rule is complete. Knowing the power of a Captain Britain, I just, huh, 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 I love these ladies. Yeah, for sure. Especially like being a woman in power, like historically does not end well. And you have to be really on point and make sure that nothing can question your rule. And being able to control like your minions is a very important thing. So in some ways, I kind of vibe with Saturnine in that way, because it's like, yeah, you got a lot of stuff on your plate. Let's make sure everything runs smoothly. And Betsy's even victim of that herself, where she's not always telling everybody in Excalibur everything because and like, I'm not trying to justify obfuscation from... Like, I'm with you exactly on this, uh, Evelyn. It's not like I want to see people misuse their power, but I recognize that as a general, in hard times, every private doesn't need to know every detail. Some of those details will hurt them to know. Jonah, I know you're younger, and for that reason, at like 22, 23 years old, you're constantly told you're not really capable of handling the merits of what's going on. Do you think Betsy and Saturnine keeping so much information off the table is acceptable in this new world war order? I think that's not, it's more of a trick question because I think there's a way to give information without having to give everything away. I think there's a way to describe things in order to make sure that everybody can understand what's going on and understand maybe the gravity and the sentiment of what those words mean without giving the full nitty gritty details that they may not need to know or might sway them in the direction that you don't want them to. It's something that I've just noticed growing up and I think it's just because I am younger, it's something that's in my mind a little more fresher is that like when adults are going through a hard time, 
oftentimes they won't tell children what's going on. They'll often just say some, everything's fine, not to worry about it, your job is just to go to school, be a kid, blah, 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 blah. But there are times when you do need to treat people who are younger or who don't have the same experience and knowledge that you have like they do. And that way you can get the help you need while also not having to really worry about uh, worry about them. So I think what you're saying is Hoxpox and the women of Hoxpox are the Desperate Housewives and Moira is Mary Alice. And we're all sitting here saying, oh, Moira Alice, what did you do? <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, but Desperate Housewives is quite literally one of the most amazing pieces of satire ever. So I'm just always going to bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I really noted was I loved the coloring of this. Oh, yes, 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 yes. The colors on Captain Britain. Praise, sing it. Yeah, I just, those bold colors. It was just, it's not something you see in comics. Comics are getting so dark nowadays that seeing like these bright, bold colors is always just so much fun. And then the Marvel team up, I dig love absolutely adore those campy villains so seeing like them stuck in a pinball machine just gave me life it was everything it was it was it was like pachinko levels of heaven yes i miss those comics i think the only thing about this particular collection of issues is that i thought it was a strange way to end on excalibur number one halfway through the werewolves arc Oh my god, and they've done it so many times. I don't know why, but Excalibur number one gets reprinted by itself. It's not even the first issue of Excalibur. You know, it made me question what the narrative theme of not only the the, the Marvel Tales book was, but, you know, the way that we're looking at it now in reference to Ten of Swords. I was just very happy to see Captain Britain in the costume that I really enjoy. I just like the mask, the way, like, it's... Uh, like just cuts across his eyes. It's like full amazingness. It's a really interesting costume. I also just like the hair. Those this weird oh, Marcel yeah. way so coif. Uh, I don't know. Every every YouTuber in the early aughts had it, so <laughs> it just like it. <laughs> so I go by comic underscore canary on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'm just a huge nerd on there, and I actually run my own podcast called Talking About It where I am going through a read-along with uh, my dad, actually, uh, on all of the Tolkien books, starting with Lord of the Rings, because something that shames me deeply is my only geek cred thing that I don't have is I've actually never read them before. So my dad actually on it. (laughs) So we're both kind of just going through and reading it from like the two different perspectives. And that's always a lot of fun. Um, you can find me on Twitter at DazzlerAOA, also where Aniko and I are running a Krakoan Remix Karaoke event. So we're doing four different uh, categories. So event one is going to be Age of Hellfire, where Hellfire Club takes over the U.S. and what changes go from there. Um, you can go online to Twitter. It's a great fan opportunity for fan artists and fan writers to get together and create something new and unique so hopefully you guys will go and check out the Krakoan remix karaoke project asleep at the w-e-i-l on twitter or asleep at the w-e-i-l.com is my website where i've got uh review videos recap articles um 
galleries for uh, old X-Men comics. What about you, Maddie? Where do we find you? As always, you can find me right here on Cage Club Network, as well as on Instagram at at the basically covetous man. And before we part, something worth saying and something worth repeating. Black lives matter. Queer and trans dreams matter. Women's reproductive rights matter. And your vote matters. It is important now more than ever to hold space for people of marginalized communities and diminished voices in such a time of social unrest. Be cautious and mindful in your words and your actions, and remember that the only bias that is appropriate is one that protects the rights and lives of others. And as always, keep those Krakoan lights lit. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Arturo, where can everybody find you? You can find me playing with toys and screaming into the void at Mr. Toy Box on Twitter and Instagram. That's M-I-S-T-E-R-T-O-Y-B-O-X. Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me putting myself in an energy crystal to then haunt Nico and Kevo because I feel like that would be kind of funny as a bit. And then I'd have to come back because it'd be like, where's Jonah? On Twitter and Instagram at peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? Guys, you can find me for the next 10 weeks celebrating the amazing that is X of Swords each week with this incredible gang of people bringing in more diverse and inclusive voices to make sure that everybody feels represented here on Krakoa. Of course, if you're looking to find me elsewhere, you can find me being loud and annoying over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, or you can find me on all of the feeds of this amazing channel, like Too Fast, Too Forever. I think I said all, but I'm just on a bunch. Too Fast, Too Forever, all fall long. Don't forget to check me out on HTML, my amazing project I do with my husband Jonah's boyfriend, the incredible Kevo, as we take a look at the Fantastic Four franchise for the remainder of the year. And guys... Real quick, I just want to mention, it goes without saying, but just in case, someone else needs to hear it one more time for everybody in the back. Black lives matter, trans dreams matter, and you have to vote like everyone's life depends on it because by goodness, this election cycle, it sure does. Guys, we can't wait to have you back here on Krakoa. And until we return, keep those Krakoan gateways open and those mutant lights lit and we'll see ya. <laughs>